I want you this morning as we start to enter into a thought experiment with me. I want you to place yourself in this situation. You are getting ready to teach your child, or if you don't have a child, a niece, a nephew, a a friend, to teach a child about saving money and investing. And so you tell them if they save their money that they can take that money to the bank and put it in the bank and they will receive interest on that money and you explain what interest is. And so your child seems excited about this, the child you're teaching, and so they go out and one of the things that you've noticed is that they spend their allowance every single week at the ice cream truck as soon as they get it. And today is no different. They're excited about the prospect of saving money and earning interest, but they get their allowance and they go to the ice cream truck and they spend their money. But on the way home, they find a quarter on the ground. It's a good day. So they come home and they take the empty piggy bank off their shelf and they put it down and they put the quarter in it and they take a couple of steps back and they wait. And you walk by the room and you see this child standing in front of this this piggy bank just standing there staring at it. And you say, um... What's going on? What are you doing? And she says, I want my interest. (laughs) Well, what interest? I I found a quarter, I put it in the bank, and now I'm waiting on my interest. Well, and you have to explain to them that's not exactly how that works. And there's a misunderstanding, but there's also a revealing of who we are and a sinfulness of man, right? We want something for nothing and we want it immediately. And so you begin the education process all over again. But... As much as we can look at that and find truth and humor in the illustration, don't we act that way toward God sometimes? God promises a blessing, and he promises that blessing will come as we do certain things in, in, through his power and for his glory. And, but we step back sometimes, and we, we do things our own way, and we still expect the blessing. So we, we, instead of saving our money and putting it in the bank, we find a quarter and put it in an empty bank, and then we step back and we say, come on. And that's what we end up doing with our lives at times. We make decisions based on our own wisdom. We find trust and hope and security in things other than Christ himself. We we hear the word of God, but we hear the word of God with a but after it. I know what God says, but... And then we step back from that depository of wisdom, never ending and never failing. We we, we supplant it or replace it with our own. And then we sit back and we say, give me, the, give me the blessing, God. Isaiah intends to attack that in his people in chapter 30 of Isaiah. Not only just for the people that are listening to him, but for us as well. And all of us in this room have done that at one time or another. The depth to which you feel the truth reveals the how often you actually live in that way. Isaiah wants us to evaluate and make sure there aren't things slipping under the radar that we can say, oh, I trust in God, and yet we're living as if we don't. Or I believe in God's word, but we never obey it. Or, or I find my security in Christ, and yet we're always worried about things that attack our physical security. Isaiah wants us to know that God exalts himself by giving mercy and blessing to his people, but he does it in a way that still maintains his just character. So it's for us as well. Turn to Isaiah chapter 30. 
And all the way through our study this morning, I want, I want you to be asking yourself, are you continually going to a fictitious bank filled up with your own wisdom and your own security and your own pathway and your own desires and trying to make a withdrawal out of that rather than turning to Christ and allowing him to exalt himself as he provides those things. We're not going to read the entire text um, all at once this morning. It's 33 verses. Um, yes, we will make it through 33 verses. Many of the, th- the truths that we will hear in Isaiah 30, we've already heard. Some we're going to hear in a little bit different way. And others we're going to hear afresh this morning as we enter into this fourth of six ahs or woes. Um, ESV has ah and the, some of the other versions have woe. I'm not exactly sure why the ESV chooses ah, and then for one of the woes, the same word translates it woe. That'll be a question for you as you get into uh, an upcoming chapter, in fact, next week of chapter 31, where the same word, the fifth ah, is now translated by the ESV translators as woe, and all the rest of them are ah. Go figure. You're going to go figure and figure that out of why they might do that. But for this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 30, the fourth one, the fourth ah, or the fourth woe, and what we will see and observe are four acts of judgment and grace directed toward his people and their enemies. Four acts of judgment and grace that Yahweh directs towards his people and their enemies. And I'm saying four acts that both include judgment and grace. Because God is working that way all the time, isn't he? In his, just, in his justice and his mercy, he is redeeming his people and condemning his enemies. And he is doing so now, and he will do so fully and finally on the final day. And they're all intertwined, and they all, it all brings him glory. Because he is just and wise and righteous at the same time. So let's look at the first seven verses as we see Yahweh describes his stubborn children who foolishly seek revenge in the wrong places. Verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares Yahweh, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn into shame. And the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Haines. Everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beast of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasure on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore... I have called her Rahab, who sits still. So we are entering back into God's assessment of his rebellious people. We started the book of Isaiah this way. We're in Isaiah chapter 1. In the second verse, we hear, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for, the, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. 
So in the second verse of Isaiah, we have the tone set that God's people are rebelling against him. And we have just chapter after chapter of describing how and what they're doing and calling them into repentance and reminding of the blessing that they have in Christ or in God. They're looking forward to the promised Messiah. We are constantly reminded of that and we are brought back to that in this phrase. Ah, stubborn children, declares Yahweh. How are they stubborn? Well, the rest of this chapter is going to tell us that they're stubborn because they know what to do and refuse to do it. They've heard the word of the Lord and they refuse to listen. They refuse to hear it. They set up other things instead than from hearing from Yahweh. And right out of the gate, they are challenged as being stubborn children. And why are they stubborn? The rest of the book fleshes it out, but, or the chapter does. But look at what he says right in verse 1. They carry out a plan, but not mine. They, they make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Now, some of your versions may have cast a web or maybe even um, something about uh, partaking of a, of, a, of a drink of oblation or something like that. It can, the Hebrew can be translated in those different ways, but all of them point to the same thing. They're going somewhere other than Yahweh to make an alliance for their own security. And so he describes that very clearly, that it is not of his spirit so we have a spiritual understanding of Yahweh's provision, and they're looking at a physical solution to their needs. And the solution that they are searching is not of his spirit. And I hope your version has spirit capitalized, because that's what we're referring to, is the spirit of God and what he wants to have accomplished by his spirit. And that in their going, they're adding sin to sin. Now, we're going to see in the rest of this chapter how one sin leads to another, leads to another, to another. So this is an introduction to what the whole chapter is going to bring us. But then it gets more specific. And this is what these last three oracles are going to do, get more specific with this alliance that Judah wants to make with Egypt. Remember our context. Assyria is to the north. They are the superpower of the day. Judah is in the middle, and Egypt is to the south. And Judah wants protection from Assyria, and so they're contemplating, maybe even in the process of seeking at the time he writes, Isaiah writes chapter 30, maybe even the process of seeking help from Egypt, another nation. Not the most powerful nation, but a nation growing in power. For the, the Ethiopians or the, the Cushites have come up and they have taken over almost all, or by this time they've taken over all of Egypt. So they have the extra power of not being the Egyptian, not only being the Egyptians, but also being in control um, of Ethiopia, by Ethiopia as well. And they're seeking physical help from them. And God says this is foolish. And he's going to demonstrate why. So as we continue pressing through the text... They're doing this without asking his direction, and we've already seen this happen in the last chapter. Ah, you who hide deep from Yahweh your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us, who knows us, and then goes on to talk about that's the same thing as the potter talking to the clay, and, and, or, or the clay talking to the potter, and telling the potter from the clay's point of view what the potter should do. It's foolishness. It's, it's insanity for them. And yet that's what they are doing, adding sin to sin without asking God's direction. Now look what it says there in the middle, in, in the middle of verse 2. They're going there to take refuge and protection. And I want you to see how this protection and shelter are carried through. They seek protection from Pharaoh. They seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, 
The protection of Pharaoh, the same words, turned to shame, and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt turned to their humiliation. So using, he, this is God assessing them, saying, this is what you think you're doing, but this is what's going to happen. What you think is going to lead to your security, your prosperity, and your, and your advancement is actually going to lead to your shame and to your humility, because they should be the ones seeking security in the shadow of the wings of the Most High. That's where they should be seeking, that they should be seeking in the shadow of God's wings. Psalm 36, 7, even Ruth in Ruth 2, 12. This is what Boaz tells to Ruth, right? You, you have come from your country and risked everything to seek shelter in the shadow of Yahweh's wings. And the people should know that, but they do not do that. So what they seek will be the opposite, shame and humiliation Verse 4 tells about the Judean officials going down into Egypt to Zoan, which is in the north, and Hanes, which is probably in the middle or in the south. So they're progressing through. They're sending their officials. Zoan used to be the capital of Egypt a few years before this time. And so they're coming into there with their, um, their officials, their envoys, and they're seeking this help. But everyone involved will come to shame. Though a people that people cannot profit them and they cannot help or bring profit to them at all. Shame and disgrace. Have they got, has God got our attention yet? That, that when we're seeking some sort of physical, human, in this case, national protection or security, we're seeking the security and shelter from, the, from exactly the opposite place where our security and shelter actually lies. If we turn to Yahweh, we receive what we seek. If we turn to the world, it turns nothing but shame. It turns nothing to our, but to our humiliation. Because God is active in this, and he gets all the glory. And when Egypt is sought for their, for their protection, then they're giving the glory to Egypt. And of all the nations in the world for them to turn to, Egypt is the last one, is it not? All the way through their history, his redemption from Egypt of his people, redeeming his people from Egypt, is held out as the example that he will always take care of his people. And so they're turning everything up side down. As one person in our Sunday school class said, it's the dog returning to their vomit. They have been delivered, and now they're spurning the one who delivered them to go back to the one who was already overcome and is in their memory and is something they teach their children day in and day out, that God, our God delivers us just like he did in that day. Well, this continues with what's listed in our Bibles as an oracle on the beast of the Negev, the, the desert, the, the southern wilderness south and southeast of Judah. And this wilderness is described in Deuteronomy 8.15 in the same way it's described here. So it's using this biblical language to show this is a dangerous place. This is a place where you can get, you can come into all kinds of trouble. You are not sustained through there in a physical way. It's a place of risk. And they are going through this land of trouble and anguish where there are lionesses and lion and an adder and a flying serpent. And that flying fiery serpent is the, and the, the adder is mentioned in Deuteronomy 8.15 as well. And they're carrying their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels. And they're going to a people that cannot, again, cannot profit just the same words that were used in verse 5. You seek profit, and in fact, you're get willing to give all your riches as if what you're seeking is worth a whole bunch. And they can't give you anything. They will not profit you. Verse 7 sums it up, doesn't it? Look at verse 7. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. It's vanity. 
Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. Rahab is used in the scriptures at times to talk as a name for Egypt, but also it is this mythical sea creature that in places like Job in the Psalms that are talked about with the Rahab and Leviathan and these, these sea creatures that seem so powerful to man. And this is all the picture of the chaos that is, that is portrayed in the Old Testament, that the people of the Old Testament would look at the sea as a place of danger and chaos and, and to stay away from it. Only the bravest sailors went out on the sea. And that's why when God acts and he tames the sea, he is proving himself to be the God above every God because no one else can tame the sea. One commentator says that Rahab who sits still can be, can be, it's a title, and he gives the title Dragon Do Nothing. Isn't that great? Dragon Do Nothing. He may be a dragon, but he can't do anything. Now, is this saying that Rahab is powerless? Not, not, in, their, not in themselves. Egypt is not powerless in themselves. They have power. But God is saying they will do nothing. Why? Because I deem it so. And I am the one who has the power. So all of that is an assessment here of what his people are like. But then in verse 8, we switch and we start getting more specific about what led to this rebellion. And one way of looking at it is verses 1 through 7 primarily deal with the fruit. And now we're going to look at the root and the closer fruit that produces all of that. So beginning in verse 8 and going through 17, the Holy One of Israel commands Isaiah to, pre to preserve this testimony... Because his people are rebellious, refusing to hear his word, and he will judge them, leaving only a remnant. You think, well, that's a little bit bulky sentence there, Rob. Well, here's what I'm trying to do. Take 33 verses and summarize them into four understandable sentences that capture the content of those sentences. To help us grasp that all the images and all the metaphors and all the pictures and all the words that are said are really conveying one major point. And it's because the people tried to find rest in the shadow of Egypt rather than in the shadow of Yahweh. So look at verse 8. And now, I've told you this, but now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for time to come as a witness forever. For... They are a rebellious people. We'll just stop there. So he is being commanded, Isaiah is to write it down. They may not be listening, but I want the people in forever and ever, in the, the, the posterity that will listen, I want them to hear what I've promised, what I've commanded, and what they've done. So you see, write it in a book, and then he gives the reason for they are a rebellious people. So that's what he's capturing in the book. It may refer to the whole book of Isaiah. I don't know, but it's definitely saying write down what's going on so other people can learn from it. We find that same, that same truth found in the New Testament, right? Everything that happened back here is, is written for our benefit. They lived it for our benefit so that we might learn about God and about man and what he expects of us. So verse 9, for they are a rebellious people. And then it's described how they're rebellious. Lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, literally the Torah of the Lord. It might be law in your version, but I think it's really capturing the idea of God's teaching, God's instruction. These are the same people who, they're unwilling to hear God's instruction, and here's what it looks like. They say to their seers, do not see. To their prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. So what's the flip side of that? We want you to prophesy to us what is 
wrong. Things are turned upside down. Why? Because they will not hear the instruction of the Lord. And when we don't hear the instruction of the Lord and we, we replace our own wisdom and our own instruction, it gets turned upside down. And then we're the people who sit back and because of our own um, workings and our own wisdom, we say, well, we're going to do it my way. And then we step back and look at the piggy bank and we say, God, where's our blessing? And God says, I'm waiting to give it to you. And we'll find out what he's waiting on in a moment. But this is where the people are. They want their prophets not to say what is right, but to speak to us smooth things, flattering things. It reminds us of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, right? There's gonna, in that day, people are going to set up for themselves. They're going to have itching ears, and they want preachers to itch their ears. Remember what he says in 2 Timothy? This is always going on when people are rebellious to God. They do not want to hear his word. They want to hear stuff that flatters them and their wisdom and gives them their goals and their wants and desires rather than having their wants and desires transformed by the word of the Lord so he can exalt himself in blessing you by pursuing his desires. They want, and it gets worse. Listen to how it intensifies. The end of verse 10. They want them to prophesy illusions. Again, false prophets. Don't tell us the truth. Paint us an illusory picture. Tell us a lie. And yet it still gets worse. They want them to tell them to leave the way, to turn aside from the path. Mark that. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to this way and, and the path and what happens after repentance and what God will do to the people who are the remnant who have repented. But they want their prophets to turn, to turn aside from the path and leave the way God has said. And now, as if it's not bad enough, are we already convicted? Have I even had to say yet, how do you do this? Because you do. There are times that you hear the word of the Lord and your brain is saying, I don't want to go on that way, on that path. I think I'll go on another path. I mean, the Lord's long suffering, right? Now, you may not say that, but your actions betray that. And yet all of it leads to this. Look at the last phrase in verse 11. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That just cuts me to the quick, does it you? Because for us, when we decide that we are going to live according to our own wisdom, follow our own joys on our own path, what we are saying, let us hear no more from the crucified and resurrected, now reigning Christ. I don't want to hear any more of that. I want what I want. The words that you give, they're too hard. The words that you give, they have too many rough edges. I have to change too much the words that you give. So I think I want my own words. Let me hear no more from the crucified, risen, now reigning Christ. But here's what happens. You see how quickly it changes? You don't want to hear from the Holy One of Israel? Look at verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel... You think you can just walk away and say you don't want to hear from me? I am speaking, God says. I am, I am giving you my word, God says. And you are unwilling to listen, but I am still speaking, and I am still going to speak. And in my speaking, in my word, contains judgment and blessing. Where will you be? Will you respond, or will you not respond? So what does the Holy One of Israel say? Because, here's the crux, you despise this word. 
So everything that's being said is you're despising the word of, of the Lord. And when we sit here and look at Israel and Judah and this day, we think, what on earth are you going back to Egypt for? I mean, God has demonstrated over and over and over his faithfulness, his power. Why are you trying to go back there? Like, like, like Assyria can be, can be overcome with you and Egypt. Like that even really can do. And we can, we can say, these, these people were just out, out of their minds. And yet we do the same thing. We find our refuge in other shadows instead of Christ. We, we are reading and yet despising the word because... And despising the Christ of the word because we won't obey the word. Or we hear the word and we nudge the person next to us and say, you need to hear that. Or we nudge our children, our husband, our wives, or whatever. Or we're thinking of the people that we just got in a fight with and we say, in an argument with and we're saying, you need to hear that word. Or we think because we're not experiencing consequences from that sin, God doesn't see us. We're making our counsels in the dark. So God says he's speaking. You don't want to hear from the Holy One of Israel? Thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, summarizing Egypt and and what's going to happen with that and summarizing their own hearts. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you. In other words, your sin shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from a hearth or to dip up water out of the cisterns. So using some multiple different images here, thinking about a strong and tall wall that looks strong, that physically we might find our security behind. We might think the the army can't scale that wall, but what we're not noticing is a bulge in the bottom, a bulge, a weakness in it that's bulging out. And as soon as that bulge goes out at a certain point, you know what happens, everything caves in. And it's going to cave in so much that what is left is going to be like a pot that shattered so much there isn't a piece big enough to scrape out a fireplace or to carry a sip of water. It will be total destruction and it will be sudden. You think you're safe? Everybody around you, you want the false prophets? What do the false prophets say? According to Jeremiah, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And what's going to happen to you because you despise my word is destruction will come upon you and it will be severe. Now we're expecting God to describe that destruction even more or to do something else in that negative way of judgment. And yet the connection, look in verse 15, for, for thus says the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. So now we have this full covenant name, powerful name, warrior name, all together. This is God speaking, and we're expecting something, but we get something else, and we're refreshed. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Now that is like, now wait a minute, how does that all work? I thought you just said that there's going to be total destruction. Isaiah, I thought you told us that the wall is going to go and there's not going to be anything left of the wall. It's going to be broken in so many pieces. There will be no usefulness of it whatsoever. But God is a God who redeems his people. 
And he's in covenant with these people, and he has made promises to his people. And the promises, for the people to receive the promises, there is obedience to the covenant. And there is obedience to what? The word of God. And so, he says, in returning, and that's repenting, in returning to me, and turning away from the way you're going, and turning to me, that is where you find rest and will be saved. In returning and rest... You shall be saved. Now, look, we're in this poetry, right? So we have one phrase and then another in quietness and in trust. So returning increases to quietness and rest increases to trust and being saved increases to strength. And we see turning to God in repentance and resting in his works and not yours leads to your salvation. And once that is there, there's an intensity given. There's, it's intensified that leads to a quietness in your spirit and trusting in God that is your strength. It is your strength to be able in the midst of chaos to be strong. And you're strong as you're quiet and resting. So when we see this phrase in verse 15, um, returning and rest, the resting is what trust looks like. You see that? Resting is what trust looks like. When you're not seeking your trust in other things, but you're seeking your trust, you're, you're trusting in God and seeking everything, your security, your, your, your safety, your, your, your spiritual security, the, the wisdom, everything that you're seeking, you get it through the trust in God, then you are resting in him. That's why we talk about resting in Christ so often in our church. Christ's work is finished. And it is finished for our salvation. And if we are truly saved, then we will walk in works that prove that we are saved. They don't earn our salvation. They prove their fruit of our salvation. And that allows us to not fret about anything. That allows us not to be anxious for anything, not to worry about anything, but to pray to him when we have that worry. And then the peace of Christ just overwhelms, overwhelms us. It's more than we can even imagine. We are resting in Christ. What happens around us, we can get upset about that. You ever got upset about what's happening in the world? You ever got upset just with what your kids do? You you ever got upset with what your spouse does? You ever upset about what you do? There's a resting in Christ that brings peace. And it is trusting that everything that's going on is in his sovereign control. It's not just that he's sitting back and saying, I can take care of that if it gets too bad. He's saying, that's my will. You're walking in suffering because it's my will that you walk in suffer. It's my will that you suffer loss. It's my will that you suffer gain. And getting gain can be suffering, can it not? Your wealth can trap you up very easily. God says, that is all my will. My goal for you is to walk in the midst of that. Trusting in me, knowing that I'm in charge of that, and that even if you die, you'll be with me. Now, that's the ultimate trust that leads to peace, and that is what's being brought. Don't seek your shelter in any other place. And listen, we sink our own ships when we are filling up our bank with our wisdom, when we are filling up our bank with our knowledge and our plans and what we want when it's in opposition to what God wants. Have you ever seen the side of a ship that has the little water marking on the side and then it's got the markings with different letters on it and things like that? Do you know where that comes from? That comes from a man in Britain who at the time that um, insurance started to be a thing, when insurance started to be a thing, the wealthy ship, the ship owners realized that if they loaded their vessels down with all kinds of goods and then had that ship sunk at sea, 
they'd make more money off the insurance than they would off of delivering the, the goods in the vessels. And so they became known as floating coffins or coffin ships. Because the people that would go, they would go out there when they, when they would see that the ship was, was um, loaded too much, then they, there would be the experienced sailors not go on that ship because they would think they knew what was going on. And so there was a, a man by the name of Samuel Plimsoll who acted in, he, he was in Parliament and he acted in Parliament to try to make laws and regulations that prohibited that. And what all his work led to was the Plimsoll line. What we just call a watermark. It's called different things throughout the world. It started in Britain, and now it's on all uh, merchant ships. There is a line on there, and there are different letters that mean different things. Like it, if it's cold water, it can be up to this level. If it's hot water, it could be this level. If it's salt water or, or um, non-salt water, pure water, then it could be at these different levels. But they are not supposed to load their cargo above that line, or it is unsafe, and there are fines involved. God is our plimsoll line. He knows exactly where our ship should sit on the pathway of life. And when we load, and, and he loads it with exactly what we need. So we never, we nev- our ship never sinks below that because he is our sustenance. But when we start adding our wisdom into the cargo, into the bank in our metaphors we've been using, and our goals, and our wants, and our desires, and our own sufficiency, then the ship gets loaded down because we have God's word. And it gets loaded down with all our desires and we're headed for disaster. God says, keep the ship right. Walk in the right paths. And I will bless you when you do that. Well, it's a glorious verse. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But then we have that nasty little word, but... There's an adversative, something is going to be in opposition to that. But you were unwilling. You said you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. God says, therefore, you shall flee away. We will ride upon swift steeds. God says, therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. Now I want you to notice things as this flows. In verse 15, God is willing, the people are not. Don't forget that. God stands willing to respond to your repentance always. He has not sent his son and consummated all of his kingdom because he is a long-suffering God and he's still redeeming people. God is always willing. Are you? Listen, if you don't know the Lord here this morning, if you are outside of Christ, then you're looking at all of this and I'm warning you on the warning passages more than anything else. I, I don't care if you grasp God's blessings. I want you to feel what it is to walk against God against Christ to ignore his word and to ignore his promises and think that everything that you do keeps your keeps your ship floating at the right height I want to take that away from you because God says you will meet your destruction you need to come to Christ this morning I want you to hear the call to Christ and in a minute I'll bring you why you have to come to Christ and no one else but I want you to feel your sin I want you to feel your sin so that today is the day that God says today is the day of your salvation. 
But for those of us who are in Christ, I want us to feel our sin as well and turn back to the cross, the finished work of Christ. Because there is always forgiveness of our sins when we are in Christ. God will discipline us. He will let our ship sink in there and and lead toward bad decisions and things that are unhealthy for us. And that's discipline for us who know him. Because there are times that we are unwilling. But God is willing. The people are not. Because they've said, no, we'll do our own way. Human, and it's really wonderful that it's upon horses and swift steeds. When the, when the Bible is clear in several places, we're not to trust in horses or men. We're to, we're to trust in the Lord our God. We're to find shadow in his wings. But then he says, a thousand shall flee like a threat of one, by a, at the threat of one and a threat of five. At the threat of five, you shall live. Now, the wild thing about this is that is a promise of blessing. In Deuteronomy, where we have blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, one of the blessings is, if you're obedient to me, you can have one person and thousands will fly. Five people, the army will fly. Because you're not working in your strength, you're working in my strength. This is a blessing to you. And here, it's reversed, isn't it? Because you haven't trust me. It's only going to take one, three, five soldiers, and you're all going to flee. And you're going to have your horses all right, and you're going to flee on those horses, and they're going to catch you. But there's still hope here, isn't there? Look back at the text. You see the hope in verse 17. This is going to happen until till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, a signal on a hill. Just picture a mountain with one flag on the top of that hill and what that signifies. Just picture Iwo Jima planting the flag. It signifies there's something left. And that's what's being told here. In fact, signal has been used already in Isaiah. It's already been used in chapter 11, verses 10 and 11 to refer to the remnant. And we'll see it again in chapter 49. This idea of being a signal is the remnant. God is always going to preserve his people. Now, in the scheme of all theology, why is God preserving some, some from, from Israel? He's preserving because the Christ comes from Israel. The Christ, the Lion of Judah, the one who is the rightful heir to David's throne. The preservation comes not for them, but to glorify God. Because it is out of Israel, it is out of Judah, that God will bring his son as Savior, as the promised Messiah. There will always be a remnant. How do you get into the remnant? How do you reveal that you were in the remnant? You reveal you're in in the remnant because you have returned and rested in Christ. And you've turned away. For Judah, they've turned away from their trust in Egypt. For you and I, we turn away from our trust in anything and everyone but Christ. Or but, but everyone but Christ, and we turn to Christ. That's how we demonstrate that we are part of the remnant. So there's still hope even here. In verses 18 through 26 is the fourth major section. Much of this we've already seen in different ways. We'll highlight what's new for us. Yahweh waits to be gracious to those who wait for him and bless them profusely. Look at verse 19 or 18. The central mean, the central verse of our text. Therefore, there is going to be a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, a signal on the hill. There will be a remnant of those who do turn and rest. Therefore, Yahweh waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show you mercy. For Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So, therefore, because God has promised a remnant and will preserve a remnant, he waits to be gracious. And he waits to be gracious to those who are repentant. 
And therefore, because he waits to be gracious, he exalts himself to show mercy on you. God does it for his glory. So when we're standing back away from the bank, after we filled it up with our own works and we're saying, where's my blessing? God says, you're not, I'm not getting glory in this. You get glory in that. I don't give my blessings for that. I exalt myself when I bless you. I exalt my own name and my own character when I bless you. It shows my goodness, but it also shows, look at the text, for Yahweh is a God of justice. So what's happening here? There is judgment and there is salvation because God is just. God is not going to turn his head away from sinfulness and not punish it. He will come against his enemies. But it's also just for God to forgive whom he chooses to forgive in the way he chooses to forgive them. He has brought this out in his own character when he says, I I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. He will judge whom he decides to judge according to his character and his character is revealed in his word. And it's all about exalting himself. Now, Isaiah has already told us in chapter 8 that he has chosen to wait on the Lord. Whatever the Lord decides, that's what he wants. And look at verse 19. It's connected. And we'll come back to verse 18 briefly. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So you notice the waiting. I just want to connect those. The Lord waits and we wait. And the Lord is waiting to be gracious to those who wait for him. So there's a lot of waiting going on, isn't there? Now, waiting is not empty. It's an active waiting, which we looked at a few weeks ago in one way. We'll look at in just a moment as we close in another way. But the waiting is our trust in him. Look at verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall sweep no more, weep no more. You will surely be great. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. So you cry out in repentance, and as soon as God hears it, he answers. And he relents, because that is how he's revealed himself. He is a God who relents of that calamity to all those who repent. He answers you quickly. And, verse 20, though the the Lord will give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Now, that reverses what we saw in verse 11. They don't want to hear the word. They want their own way. They want to hear false prophets tell them to leave the way. And God says, when I have entered into your life because you've repented, you will hear my voice. You may walk through adversity. You may walk through affliction. But your ears will hear my word behind you directing and guiding. This is, this is foreshadowing that movement of the spirit that we all have. And that will result in something. Look at verse 22. Then... You will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. So what does that repentance bear? It bears the fruit of repentance. When you repent of idolizing your own wants and desires and will and wisdom and putting your trust in them and you turn to Yahweh and you turn to Christ and you look for him for everything that you need, that results in repentance because you realize those idols are useless and Christ is beautiful and so you get rid of them. Be gone. You're done. 
I'm done with you, my own desires. I want what Christ wants. I'm done with you, my own wisdom. God speaks through his word. I'm done with you trying to figure out what to do. God tells me what my, wife should, what my life should look like. I'm done with all of that. That's the fruit of repentance. It's the mark that your repentance is of Christ. And that's what he's showing us here. It's connected. Then you will do this. And... Verse 23, he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days and the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. So we have this picture of the Lord reversing everything that he's promised to bring in judgment for the remnant, for those who are in him. How many times have we seen that the land is going to be devastated and you're not going to have any cattle and your houses will be gone and your towns will be a place for one poor oxen to graze? Well, now the promise is of that abundant blessing. And yes, it's a physical blessing, but it's also reminding us of the spiritual blessing that we have as well. That the physical blessings bring us to a greater relation and a deeper relationship with the one who gives those gifts. We're not just standing back looking at the bank saying, give me my interest. We're walking in a way that pleases him and God is blessing us. And as he blesses us, even in affliction, we are rich. Even in, in, when we're walking in, in times of, of um, adversity, we are strong. So it is a physical blessing, but it is also a spiritual blessing. And there's some of this blessing that we know isn't going to be complete until Jesus returns. And we're in the new Jerusalem. That we're in the new heaven and new earth as the new Jerusalem. And that's what we will see its fulfillment. And so part of this is now and part of this is not yet. The same way we've seen all of our eschatology in scripture. When Christ comes, he gives us a taste But it will not come to its final state until he returns. But we still are seated with him in the heavenly places with all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And that will come to complete fruition in that day. So we're already nodding to that day. We're already using that kind of language of God blessing us. But remember, he's doing this as a just God, right? He is a God who exercises justice. So in the same way that he's providing for those who are his, he is condemning and judging those who are his enemies. Look at verse um, 27. In 27, we will look to this final section. Yahweh will judge Assyria with burning anger while his people feast with gladness. Behold, the name of Yahweh comes from afar. Burning with his anger and in thick smoke, his lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. To sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. So here he's talking about not only Assyria, but all the nations. This is what he's going to do. And notice that it's all the name of the Lord coming from afar. 
Now, in this section, we're going to see the name of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the breath of the Lord. The name of Yahweh, the voice of Yahweh, and the, and the breath of Yahweh, all working together for blessing and for judgment in these sections. And so it's all the nations. But remember how uh, um, Assyria was described, that when Assyria was going to come against the, uh, Israel, God says it will be like a flood of waters, a raging river that will come up to your neck in judgment. He describes Assyria as being his rod that will do that to Judah. Now he's saying, Assyria, my judgment will come up to your neck. He completely reverses and transforms the judgment that he was going to do against Judah, that he did. He uses Assyria for against Judah. Now he says it's going to be the same way for you, Assyria. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. He's a devouring fire. This is that picture of theophany, of, the, of God appearing, of God appearing to his people. And it brings us back to Mount Sinai, but it also starts thinking about the time that Christ returned to, to come against his enemies with all of his people arrayed in white garments. There's an emptiness here. There's a destruction that God will bring forth. But while he's doing that, he is also continuing to bless his people and they rejoice in their salvation. Look at verse 29. You, now that's what happens to them, the nations who are rebelling against me. You shall have a song in the night when a holy feast is kept. And gladness of heart is when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of Yahweh, to the rock of Israel. So God's people are rejoicing in their salvation. I don't think this is a picture of God's people rejoicing in his judgment of other nations. That's difficult for us to do. We've talked about this already in Isaiah. That is difficult for us to do in this life. It's it's difficult for us to fully rejoice in God's destruction of the wicked because we're still praying for the wicked. There's still hope for the wicked until Christ returns. But on that day, when Christ returns, we will rejoice in everything because we will see every work that God has ever done as being good and right and just. And we will rejoice in him and his goodness. This is the revelation of his name, his name coming from afar. And when we, when we talk about the name of Yahweh or the name of Christ or the name of God, we're talking about all of his character. So this is his character. It's his reputation. He said in several places in, 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 the, in the Old Testament that he is rising up to protect his name against, and his reputation against the disobedience of his children. And that's what we have pictured here. But the same as there is rejoicing in his people. Look at verse 30. And Yahweh will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm of hailstones. We continue with this idea of this theophany of God's presence. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of Yahweh. So it is the name of Yahweh coming from afar. They will hear the voice of Yahweh when he strikes with his rod. And remember, Assyria was the rod of God against his people earlier in chapter 10. Now God is striking with his own rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that Yahweh lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. He will come against Assyria even while his people are rejoicing. And both of these happen together because God is a God of justice. And he will redeem his people because they have repented and trusted in his son. And he will destroy his enemies 
because it's for the sake of his name. This is the same kind of language we see in Revelation with the lake of fire, isn't it? The same kind of language that we see when the beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire, and then Satan himself is thrown in, and then death and Hades are thrown in, and then all God's enemies are thrown in to the lake of fire that burns forever with that kind of punishment. So we are seeing the truth that he's going to come against the Assyrians, and also that that is an example of what will happen on the last day when he shows up with all of his glory and comes against all of his enemies. Look at verse 33. For a burning place has been prepared. Indeed, for the king, and I think that's clearly the king of Assyria, it is made ready. It's pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of Yahweh, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. So the burning place, it, it may be referring to a specific place, the, the Topheth, where, where that's the place where Molech would, would require people to bring their children and sacrifice to him. And it, was, it turns into a garbage dump and then Gehenna and through all scripture. But I think its use here is just meant to be talking about the lake of fire, talking about the punishment using that kind of language against Assyria. And it waits everyone who is his enemy. And it's been long prepared. This isn't something God's just conjuring up. This has always been in his mind. Now, the question you need to ask yourself right away is, how do I make sure that I'm not headed there, but I'm part of the remnant who is celebrating for their salvation? How do I make sure of that? Because I feel in my own spirit that I'm disobedient to God, and I'm disobedient to God much more than I want to be. And, I, and I, I set my own way. I mean, I, I felt for a long time that God might want me to consider being a missionary, but I said, I can't do that. I have children. I, I thought for a long time that God would rather me pick up and go plant a church in, in a town that I know doesn't have a church, but I can't do that. I've got a job here. I, I felt for a long time that God would have me not have so much of my money tied up in my stuff and things, so it would be more free to, to glorify him with my money and to help needs of people who, don't, who have those needs. But I can't do that because then I wouldn't have my retirement like I want it to be. I felt for a long time God wants me to stop watching that pornography on my TV or my computer, but it's really hard to do that. How am I, what am I supposed to do with that? I can't do that. I felt for a long time that God wants me to give up. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank of how you are replacing the sustenance and the wisdom and the provision and the security and the rest and the salvation of your God with your own making. You're filling your bank up with your own things. Your, your, your plimsoll line is now buried under the water. Now, maybe today you need to meet Jesus. Because if you look back in the middle of this verse, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. He's a God of justice because he doesn't wink at sin. And so if you want to make sure that you are the one who receives the blessings of God and that your salvation is secure in the presence of Christ forever, worshiping instead of in the lake of fire, suffering forever. If you want to make sure of that, then you have to give up your own life. I mean, I'm not telling you to make a decision so you get the better instead of the worse. I'm telling you to give up your life and trust in the one who gave his life for those who would trust in him. Because when he came, he didn't just come 
But he came and lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross. And when he died, he took on the death. And he took on the, 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 that everyone who believes in him needed to die spiritually. He died for them. And he also takes the wrath of God. He doesn't just say, God doesn't say, well, I'm having a blue light special on wrath today. If you come to me today, I'll keep my wrath to myself. He's placed it on his son. And he's done that so that those who come to him and rest in him and trust in him, find their security in him. Those who give up their life and trust in him. Those who pick up their cross daily now because they are part of his people. Those who are the ones who are saying, I give up on all my own works and I trust in the perfect work of Christ. Those are the people that he has suffered the wrath of God and he has died in in their place so that they might have life eternal. Now we still have to wait, don't we? Even as believers, we have to wait, we have to trust, we have to not go back to Egypt and turn to our own lives and our own strength. But it is there for the taking. So this morning, if you are looking at all this and say, listen, I I don't even understand what you're talking about. How else can I live my life except to live it the way I see fit? I'm introducing to you the one who says, I've given my life for you so you can take on my life. And you can understand my word so you see what your life's supposed to look like. And you have my spirit so you know which way to turn. You have my spirit that through his word and through his leadership, he is telling you to stay on the path. Even when you're turning right or left, he's keeping you on the path. I'm exalting myself to bless you. That is turning to Christ, receiving your salvation and giving up your own life. Do that today. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. And the new life before you is powered by Christ. Now, if you're already in Christ here, it's the same message we've been hearing over and over and over, isn't it? Don't turn to Egypt. Don't turn to your own skills, your own wisdom. Turn to Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a passage on waiting, and we went through a bunch of different ways the Bible talks about waiting and how active waiting is. I'm not going to go back through all those again, but we need reminding. I need reminding. Do you? Do you need reminding of the truth of the word and the ways that you tend to veer away from it? Now, you've already heard read today, chapter 25, Psalm 25. I want you to turn to that, and I'm just going to read it. I promise, I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to comment, because Psalm 25, that Terry already read for us today in the middle of the singing and praying that we had this morning, is a psalm about waiting in an active manner and trusting in the Lord. So I want you to stand with me as I read it. And this is where we're closing this, the sermon. I want you to stand as I read it. And I want you to hear the voice of God through Isaiah with the resting and the waiting and the promises of God, even in the midst of adversity and what that looks like. Psalm 25 of David. To you, Yahweh, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. 
Remember your mercy, Yahweh, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of Yahweh are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward Yahweh, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Do you think David might have been thinking exactly what Isaiah wrote when he wrote this? All the themes in Isaiah 30 come through in David telling us how to live that life that waits on the Lord. Let's go and do that and see how the Lord exalts himself as he blesses us. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we are not the ones who are in charge of our lives. And when we take charge, we sink ourselves. So we are so thankful, Father, that you are the one who has not only redeemed us, but you have revealed to us what our what our lives should look like. You have revealed to us what pleases you. You've revealed to us the mission that you have called us to. You've revealed to us what your spirit's role is in, in keeping us on those paths. And we are a people, Father, who wants to exalt you and see you exalt yourself as you continue to redeem people who repent and rest in you. And as your people live lives that are gaining strength by being silent being quiet in your presence and trusting you. For you are the God who numbers our days, controls all of our steps. And we, Father, are thankful for your sovereign hand. And we ask you to help us to be the people who crucify our own sin, who quit going to the bank that we have loaded and asking for your blessings. But we come to the giver of all good things. And through Christ, see you exalt your name as you bless us and we exalt yours through the blessing. We ask you to do this, Father, in our daily life. And it is our daily prayer that we might walk with you in this way. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.